guys, welcome back to Rock and Remember, the podcast where we share our passion for rock by sharing the history with you. Today we're talking about how rock history has found its roots and the foundation in racism. I'm going to start this off by quoting an essay that I found to find to be very significant. It was published in 1973 by a black critic and author, Margot Jefferson, and it was titled Ripping Off Black Music. An important part from this article is when Jefferson says, The night Jimmy, as in Jimi Hendrix, died, I dreamed this was the latest step in a plot being designed to eliminate black from rock music so that it may be recorded in history as a creation of whites. Future generations, my dream ran, will be taught that will rock that while rock may have had its beginnings amongst blacks, it's had its true flowering among whites. The best black artists will thus be studied as remarkable primitives who unconsciously foreshadowed future developments. Here's a brief timeline to put that in perspective. By the mid-1970s, young black musicians who wanted to play songs by Led Zeppelin and Grand Funk Railroad were ridiculed by white and black peers. In July 1979, thousands of white rock fans rioted at Chicago's Comiskey Park, which came to be known as the Disco Demolish Night. They burned disco records in what many described as an anti-black uprising. In 1985, Back to the Future featured history being altered so that Chuck Berry's sound is instead invented by a white teenager. In 2011, a popular New York classic rock radio station held a poll to determine the top songs of all time. Only 22 were recordings by black artists, and 16 of those 22 were by the late Jimi Hendrix. There were 1,043 songs on that list. So, how did rock and roll music, a genre that's rooted in black traditions, and many of the earliest stars were black, so how did it come to be understood as the as a genre for whites, created by whites. Why did this happen during a decade generally understood to be marked by unprecedented levels of interracial aesthetic exchange, music collaboration, and commercial crossover more broadly? In 1970, one prominent obituary pointedly described Jimi Hendrix as a black man in the alien world of rock. So I guess we can safely say that Jefferson's horrible dream became a reality. One theory on the music's re-racialization has been to place the blame on black performers by arguing that, as the 1960s progressed, black music effectively effectively self-segregated. However, this narrative completely excuses the white side from any responsibility for the disappearance of black artists from rock music. White artists, white rock artists, traditional rock artists, receive lavish biographies like Bob Dylan and the Beatles, and white people are recognized as individuals, while non-white people are only recognized in relation to these collectives. They're They're only recognized in relation to these white artists like the black drummer in this band, the 
roots of rock history are in black people, but who are those black people? Will this ever be said? Another example, a late, uh, an earlier example, was one, one night late in the 1950s in Birmingham, Alabama. The Flamingos pulled up to a concert hall to a row of 3 to 50 police officers holding rifles and billy clubs. The cops escorted the group to its dressing room and gave strict instructions. They were only to make eye contact with only the black fans and not with whites on the floor. Terry Johnson, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, recalls that it was ridiculous. The cops were up there making sure we did not look at any white person. It was a rule when we came in. They would say, I don't want to see any of you darkies looking at the white woman out there. If you do, your ass is mine. Cruel things like that. Often, black artists couldn't stay at hotels and were served rotten food at white restaurants. They, well, if they weren't outright banned from them. They would instead rather drive out of the way to eat at a black friend's home. Obviously, that performance in Birmingham stayed with Johnson. In the 50s and 60s, black performers found themselves on the front lines of the battle over segregation. The clashes at lunch counters, schools, and on buses have been well documented, but reporters weren't exactly covering James Brown club shows back then. Entertainers throughout the South were forced to participate in a crowd separation ritual. Venues would be classified black or white, depending on which was the majority at the concert. Police and promoters physically separated the audiences, sometimes, as in the Flamingos shows, Blacks were in the balcony and whites on the floor. Other times, a painted line ran down the center of the theater as a rope separated the audience. In 1955, Barry performed at the Duval Armory in Jacksonville, Florida, and recalled in his autobiography, just before they were to open the doors for the spectators, four of the maintenance guys came out and roped off the armory with white window cord. They looped and tied it to each seat down the center aisle, making it an off-limit zone that neither colored nor whites could tread. Barry also once showed up for a Knoxville, Tennessee concert, only to find that a group of white men had replaced him with a local cover band. In the early 50s, Lottie Miss Claudie, also known as Lloyd Price, performed in Raleigh, North Carolina, and was delighted to see blacks and whites dancing to his songs. Until, of course, a white policeman stopped the music and stretched a rope down the middle of the dance floor. This had become commonplace in the 1950s. And how did this affect black artists? Well, obviously, they didn't get the fame they deserved. Black artists were held from the spotlight, just like just like Barry was at his Tennessee concert. They were often replaced with cover bands with all-white artists, so that they could have the black sound, but not the black people. An example 
A great example of this is actually Elvis Presley. He, many people say he's the king of rock and roll, but he was only really famous because he was a white man with a black person's voice. So what's my take on this? My personal take is that I think black people have an overdue history of royalties they should have been paid or credits they should have been given for songs that are sang or supposedly written by white artists. If this is all that was documented, can you imagine what wasn't documented? black artists were wrongfully stolen from or re-racialized? How many black artists were erased from history? Some that we'll never even know the names of. You know, I was looking at the genius lyrics for a protest, protest song by Odetta the other day, and I was surprised because everyone knows this song. Every, I'm sure everyone knows this song. It's very closely connected to the civil rights movement, but when I looked at the genius lyrics, there were no definitions for the lyrics. Why is it that such an important song is completely undocumented? If a song like that isn't documented even now, imagine everything that wasn't documented back then. For all we know, we don't even know the half of it. <laughs>